0: Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined by Deputy Editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. And Editorial Associate Abigail Kane. Hey, Isaac. Hello to you both. So on this episode, we're actually going to be discussing a topic that I've written about frequently, that is Nazi looted art. So rather than be the host, I'm going to hand over the hosting reins to Abby.
1: Very excited to be here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> this is this is weird. I feel like the feng shui of this podcast is off, but I, I know you're going to do a great job.
1: Well, I'll cross my fingers. So over the course of World War II, the Nazi Party stole hundreds of thousands of works of art. Historians estimate that it was about 20% of the works in the territories that the Nazi Party occupied, which considering that a number of those territories like France were incredibly rich in art, you can imagine how much art went missing. So now, more than 70 years after the end of World War II, there are still something like 100,000 works that are missing. And some of those are in private collections. Some of those are in museums, either public or private. Some of them are just flat out missing. We don't know where they are. And what we're going to be talking about today on this episode of the podcast is restitution. So the process of those works being returned or in some cases not returned to the heirs of the original owners from which they were stolen back in World War II. And so at first glance, it seems like this might be pretty simple. The work should be returned to the heirs of the original owner, but it is not that simple, as Isaac will
0: let us know. No, it's not. It's not (laughs) that simple at all.
1: So granted, this is not the most lighthearted of subjects, but we are going to start the discussion out today with a particular bright spot in the world of Nazi restitution with an article that Isaac published a couple of weeks ago about the frozen food company, Dr. Ucker, which is... And doing... cakes. Oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> I never knew about this company before this article, but apparently they do frozen food
0: and cake. That's insane. I ate Dr. Ucker pizzas like three times a week when I was studying in London.
2: It was a fundamental part of my life in Germany. It's
0: the best. They're, they make the best frozen pizzas. Um, they I also was able... have a very good art collection. They also have a good art collection Um, But, you know, I I maintain journalistic objectivity. I set aside the frozen pizzas. So yeah, I I sort of I wrote about their efforts to investigate the provenance of the works in their collection. So Dr. Utker, like a lot of German companies that existed during the Second World War, was very close to the regime of Adolf Hitler. The, the Utker family major, was a majority shareholder in a company that used forced labor and created munitions for the German government. So, you know, just before we talk about the good they're doing, it's always important to, to preface that by, obviously, the, the complicated past. Um, but after the, the war, um, the Utker family acquired a large collection of art, you know, hundreds of works of art. And recently, they've begun to investigate both their own history as a company and the provenance of the art uh, in their collection and kind of see uh, what history these pieces have.
1: And did they do that because there was some sort of scandal or did they just decide to do it out of the blue?
0: Well, we'll talk a little bit about the Gerlach because because, you know, there's no direct tie of that into into anything that they've they told me. But generally, this the, the effort to look into the provenance of their art collection came after they had started to look into their history, their corporate and family history and its relationship to Nazi, uh, the Nazi regime. So this is sort of like part of that broader kind of campaign to be honest and look at what, what it is that they did and what it is that they still have that tarnishes their reputation as part of that. They have identified um, four works uh, in their collection, which they're continuing to research, starting with the paintings that, have uh, a potentially of Nazi provenance. They've returned two of them to their original owners, uh, to the heirs of the original owners.
1: Right, and so in the article you wrote about Dr. Ucker's as like a company that was doing the right thing. And, you know, just listening to you explain it, it sounds like they are just basically returning work that is not theirs. I mean, is that earth-chattering?
0: Yeah, I mean, the work is theirs. These these paintings weren't taken um, by the Ucker family like during the Second World War. They were purchased after Mainly in the 50s, um, but why it's why it's kind of remarkable is that it's a voluntary effort, uh, which is aimed at achieving sort of morally just outcomes as opposed to satisfying a legal uh, requirement after being sued by the heirs uh, of a painting. So they're take undertaking it themselves. They're looking into their own collection. They're spending quite a bit of money um, to do so and it's a real contrast to um both some museums that have been forced to court uh by the heirs of of the original owners of the paintings but also even to private collectors who will uh look into their own collection but do it quietly and then rather than avoid rather than attract attention um towards themselves so it, it's both public which is remarkable and they espouse to be reaching morally just sort of outcomes Um, equitable outcomes. They have their own guidelines. They wouldn't share those with me. But, you know, I talked to some outside observers and they sort of said, yeah, it's kind of impressive uh, what what this company is doing. They're sort of, you know, I wish all museums, for example, behave this way.
1: Right. And before we get into those nuts and bolts, um, I feel like we should maybe take a step back and talk about the Gorilla Trove, which you mentioned earlier in passing. Um, But Alex, I know you know a lot about the background of that. And that was sort of the moment that started focusing attention back on Nazi restitution.
2: So yeah, as Isaac mentioned, um, you know, Nazi looted art restitutions have been happening um, for many years, and um, certain countries have even gone as far as to really purge their national collections of works. Um, But significantly more public interest and therefore publicity and press coverage was placed on the issue um, following the uh, discovery of the so-called Gurlitt Art Trove, um, which was over 1,200 works of art that was found in the Munich apartment of Cornelius Gerlitt. Um, these were actually uncovered by tax authorities in 2012, uh, but weren't act- weren't reported until November of the following year in 2013. It sparked a, a, a wide outrage, uh, partially because when it was initially reported, I think the, the estimates of value were well into the billions, where um, it, it, the value of the artworks ended up being far less than that. Um, but Cornelius Gerlitt was the son of Hildebrand Gerlitt, who was an art dealer during the Nazi regime and collaborated with the regime um, to sell artworks that they had confiscated. Um, so they were actually confiscating artworks in Germany and selling these so-called degenerate artworks outside of the country to other collectors profiting off of them. So Gerlitt himself had uh, amassed this collection and passed it on to his son, It was thought to be initially when it was uncovered to be, you know, predominantly looted artworks, um, as it turns out in the years since, uh, during a very comprehensive provenance research um, effort by the German government far fewer than I think were initially anticipated are uh, Nazi-looted art, or at least suspected Mm -hmm. to be. There have been a number of prominent restitutions, one of a of a major Matisse painting and and a few others. But this definitely concentrated focus on this issue. It got people thinking about it a lot more. Um, And I think it importantly due to the the mass interest involved became an issue that you uh, could be very prominently on the right or wrong side of, or a much greater sense of attention placed on the kind of nuances of why an artwork might not get restituted. Um, the, the attention over the last, I can't believe it, but I guess four years now, um, has been you know, much more heightened, um, and I think there's been a, a sense that a lot of this that was happening in the shadows or happening quietly um, is definitely being kind of brought out into the public sphere.
1: And I know recently, I think in the last couple of months, there's been some outrage among the public because in the four years since they discovered it, they've had a team of researchers trying to figure out who used to own these works and they've only figured out the previous owners of five, I think, out of the thousand and something.
2: Yeah, and I think there are a number of contributing factors there. So, you know, one is that a good portion of this work um, when they did an initial uh, provenance research was found to not even be really part of um, Hildebrand Gerlitz's Nazi looted activities. Um, And the other thing is that, you know, provenance research is just simply hard. You know, it's not like uh, people, well, there actually were some pretty meticulous records kept of these things. Um, It's not necessarily an exact science. You know, people are oftentimes, you know, finding old photos of a living room and realizing that this painting is gone missing. Um, and I think there's there's oftentimes this kind of matchmaking that has to happen between, you know, someone realizing that there's shady provenance of a work that they they might be trying to sell or um, that, you know, they see it in, in a museum and, and, and something raises a question with also another person, you know, sometimes on the other side of the world realizing that, you know, grandma or grandpa who lived in Germany or or Nazi occupied territories during the time of the Second World War had artwork that we know no longer have and and where is it identifying what those works look like putting them up on a place like the Art Loss Register or uh, listing them with a group like Art Recovery International and and those two pieces lining up and, and finding each other and then on top of that a uh, so-called fair and equitable solution being on the reach between the two parties to to bring these works back to their uh, rightful heirs.
0: And yeah, Alex, you used the word equitable, which I think is really interesting because often in the abstract, these cases seem very clear-cut. And to some people, they they remain clear-cut even when they get complicated. But generally, the idea of coming up with an equitable solution is one that everyone could agree to. And that kind of idea of working to put collections online to make them accessible um, in order to help connect those dots, as you kind of mentioned, Alex, and then eventually come to an equitable solution, have been enshrined in numerous international agreements, uh, most notably the 1998 Washington principles, which have been cited in court decisions, in press releases, really whenever this uh, comes up, even though they're not binding, they're sort of a touchstone for this argument. They sort of are the moral bedrock upon which everyone is kind of judged.
2: And exactly, I think where this gets complicated is the space in between the moral bedrock, what everybody can kind of agree uh, on some level should happen. You know, if if something was stolen from you and it's discovered years later, um, there's a strong argument for you getting it back um, or or your heirs getting it back, but there's a lot of... um, reality in between uh, that fills that gap between kind of the the moral argument and what may end up being the solution um, that can end up clouding that. You know one of the most basic uh, things that people can come up against is that in most or many statutes, uh, whether a painting was stolen by the Nazis or you're just average petty thief, um, it's subject to the same statute of limitations, so if you don't find it until um, after that has expired, things can get vastly more complicated. Um, there are also situations in which um, you know certain buyer beware laws in different countries are regulated in different ways. So you know if the current owner doesn't know, or made a good-faith effort to uncover whether or not a painting was looted and did not come across anything, they may not be held responsible for currently owning that painting. And I think that's, again, as you mentioned earlier on with the um, Dr. Urker case, these are paintings that, or sculptures and whatnot that were purchased by somebody that they spent money for. So a part of this kind of just... Uh, and fair solution that has to be reached does have to take into account that, you know, it's not someone having gone out and stolen something and then taking it back from them. It's somebody having purchased a work or somehow come about a work um, in a in a generally legal way, um, and then having to go back and kind of rectify a historical wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, that said, there are specific exceptions carved under u.s law for example for the holocaust so and and for work taken during during the holocaust there's just recently uh, new legislation passed towards the tail end of last year uh, addressing the statute of limitations in, in nazi uh, in cases involving nazi looted art that extended it and that doesn't apply to other stolen property i think there's a valid argument to be made you know why does that only apply to the holocaust and not other kind of conflicts or acts of genocide but there are even enshrined in u.s law and in court decisions sort of special rules for, for lack of a better word for Nazi looted cases.
1: Right. Well, and I know Isaac, you've written about one case in particular that is deeply complicated, but you're not going to go into all the details, but the That's a wa- <laughs>
0: you're warning me not to go into all the details.
1: <laughs> a subtle warning, but uh, the Norton Simon case, I know sort of exemplifies a lot of these, these different things that you're talking about.
0: Yeah. So I won't get into the history uh, of, of what happened here too, too much because it's really, really complicated. But you can, you know, I've written about this uh, on Artsy, so you can check that out. Um, but essentially, this case exemplifies sort of what's, a, what's an ongoing dichotomy and the central issue in a lot of these lawsuits, which is the actual substantive factual history of a work, i.e., was this looted by the Nazis and should it go back to the original owners and legal questions governing issues of law like, was this claim Filed In a timely manner, should the heirs have registered a complaint with the government following the war? And these governments were the ones tasked with restituting art by the allies after the war. So, you know, these sort of questions have actually been considered um, by the judge in this Norton Simon case. Maybe give us like just a couple of brief details. What works
1: are being disputed?
0: Right. So so the case centers around two works by uh, Lucas Cronach the Elder, um, who the the heirs of the original owner, um the heir being Marie von Sayer, um has sued the Norton Simon Museum, and this case has been dragging on for I think a decade at this yeah, a decade at this point. Over a decade. Over over a decade. Because it started um,
1: in 2005, right?
0: Yes, over a decade. And it was actually, you know, I'll just give, you know, one example to sort of illustrate what I was talking about. So the case in August was actually won sort of out of nowhere through a ruling by the judge in favor of the Norton Simon Museum. And he essentially said that, you know, we're not going to decide whether or not this work was taken by Hermann Göring. That's not what this ruling says. What it does say is, okay, the Norton Simon wins because the original owners of the work failed to make a claim following the end of the war in a timely manner. And they should have done that with the relevant authorities in Europe. And advocates for people who have had their, of heirs of people who've had their work taken say, well, that's ridiculous. You're ignoring, some would say the actual law, you're misreading the law, but also you're ignoring the factual history of the work and the substantive history of the work, which is that it was in the collection at one point of, Göring. And like surely that trumps or should be an important factor in uh, deciding these cases, not did you file your claim before the clock ran out.
1: And so I'm curious, after a ruling like that, it seems like the- a
0: ruling which is being uh, which is being appealed. Just by Oh, the way.
1: sorry. A ruling that is being appealed. But generally in the case that is a museum versus an heir uh, of someone that used to own a stolen work you know, I feel like public opinion would be against the museum. What what kind of arguments are the museum's making to justify this sort of legal battle?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly times in which the public, whether through boycotts or petitions or whatnot, will go against museums that are withholding a restitution claim. On the on the flip side of that, I think museums are, uh, or do often kind of muster another argument, which is that um it's their responsibility as an institution to keep things on public view you know i think the extent to which that morally trumps the fact that a work was uh looted by the nazis is is potentially questionable but on the flip side of that i think seeing you know having uh, having watched a number of these cases take place in which then you know a restitution takes place and uh a year later the same work comes up at auction. I think you, you can, I guess, begin to see why certain museum directors would make the argument that like, hey, what what's actually to be gained here? But, you know, the other question and what often does get raised in particular with German museums is why, you know, though they presumably do hold um, the greatest number of Nazi literature artworks, Unlike, um, for example, Austrian museums or the Netherlands, which has undergone uh, a full kind of purge of their collections, Germany has not done that. Part of it, and that to get back to Dr. Ucker, I think is a clear example, um, is scale. So, Isaac, I know you had some interesting figures in the piece about how much uh, a company like Dr. Urker potentially would have been spending um, on on this kind of effort and, and how much time. Um, and while, again, I, I think there's a strong argument to be made that, like, these practical things, are, it's hard to kind of square that with, like, oh, would that we could make up for looting thousands and hundreds of thousands of artworks but we just don't have the time or resources and and that tension i think is is the strongest one between museums and people on the other side of the the restitution debate at least in germany
0: yeah, I, I spoke to, you know, a few people who are involved in provenance research and, you know, it, it really varies depending on the painting. Um, but if you're dealing with with works crossing war-torn Europe, as obviously these pieces are, um, it can cost tens of thousand dollars and take more than a year for just one piece. Um, so when you're looking at researching entire collections, museums face a serious resource challenge. But I would also say that that's, you know, they could dedicate more resources to it. And I also think that the cost of provenance research is nothing, nothing compared to litigating a claim. So I do, I think that it's fair to sometimes raise an eyebrow uh, at some of the defenses being thrown forward by these institutions, you know, even if they're claiming the public good. Um, I, I think one should just be critical about why there's there continues to be sort of a an intransigence um and not just at institutions, but just generally.
1: So Dr. Ecker seems like it's a promising, but also somewhat unique example of a company taking on Nazi restitution. Alex, do you see that serving as a model for other institutions in the coming years?
2: Yeah, I think it's hard to say. Um, they they have been particularly good at not only doing the right thing by, by restituting their artworks, but being quite public about doing so and I'm sure there are many companies both in Germany and and individuals as well um, and elsewhere that are um, undertaking things in a a somewhat similar way. Um, I do think the one thing that we have to look out for like any kind of major issue in the world is that um, as you get further and further away from bigger headline items like, uh, like the girl at Trove that public interest wanes. So I think you know, part of the responsibility falls on um, publications like ours and other news organizations continuing to place attention on um, these important issues, and also the public to remain aware of, you know, even the the smaller uh, instances that are happening out in the world that keep pressure on courts and private collectors and auction houses um uh, actually auction houses in particular to report when they get a consignment that has sketchy provenance oftentimes um those are kind of swept under the rug or sent back to their consigner because uh, getting into those re- those battles just like uh, getting into a battle against a, a work that might not be authentic um can be problematic for for the house or at least time-consuming so while I, I think by no means do we want to necessarily uncover some giant trove of art that nobody knew about that's been stolen, it's important to find then other ways to keep uh, attention on, on this important issue.
1: So now it's time for where we'll be drinking white wine in the art world this week. Um, Isaac, why don't you start us off?
0: So I'm going to be cheating again this week. I've done this before. Uh, I'm reading a book I'm going to use a book for my white wine because I'm going to spend the weekend reading it. Are you going to drink white wine while you read the book? Definitely. That that part I'll adhere to, I promise. Um, It's called Form Follows Finance. It's by a Columbia University professor named Carol Willis. It's a really excellent uh, look at the architecture of New York versus Chicago from the late 1980s to the mid-1950s, and it posits a different way of thinking about why these two cities look so different. So rather than historical readings that have kind of focused on different schools of architecture dictating how buildings look, you know, big, tall skyscrapers in New York and blocky uh, squatter buildings in Chicago, she actually looks at zoning laws and the economies of the cities to explain why actually, no, 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 these factors, um, financial factors are what, and, and regulatory factors are what um, determined how these two cities are actually look. You're
2: on a big architecture kick recently. Huge architecture kick.
1: All right. And Alex, what about you?
2: Um, well, I was in Hong Kong last week. Oliver Lyson opened up a new show at Tanya Banakdar, so I'm excited to go see that and also catch up on the rest of Chelsea. I think I'm, I'm due for my tour around, around there every six weeks or so. How sure. about you, Abby? What are you doing? I hear you have a good one.
1: Well... I got tickets to go experience Doug Wheeler's new installation at the Guggenheim. Basically, he's created this environment that's supposed to simulate the experience of infinite space. It like restricts sound and light. Um, and apparently he designed a lot of these immersive environments. He's a light and space artist from California. Um, and he designed a bunch of these immersive environments in like the 60s and 70s, but they're only now realizing them. Anyway, they only let five people inside at a time, so you have to get time tickets.
2: Continues your, your experiential take on the Guggenheim. I remember you did a good piece on the golden toilet
1: uh, last year. Yes, that was a very different kind of experience because that was me waiting outside of a toilet. Gold one, but a normal toilet nonetheless, asking people <laughs> what their experience was like.
2: Somebody caught a Pokemon Go in there.
1: Yeah, that was my best, that was my best one. That was my greatest work as a journalist. Yeah. I could have just thrown in my pen then. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks to our guests, Isaac and Alex. Isaac will be back as host next week until then rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you haven't already and we'll see you next week. podcast this week was produced by me abigail kane with assistance from the lovely demi chem the theme music is by broke for free